You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. In the mid-1980s, researchers from the University of Minnesota, led by Dr. David Snowden, had received some funding from the National Institute on Aging to study about 700 nuns across their lifetimes. The nuns were members of the School Sisters of Notre Dame, and they all volunteered to have their brains donated to research when they died. Not only that, but during their lives, they allowed researchers into every aspect of what they did every day. They shared their diaries, their medical records, they did psychological, personality, and cognitive tests, and their fitness levels were gauged annually. The study was called the Nun Study on Aging and Alzheimer's, and it set out to identify varying correlations and causes of cognitive decline. It has since become a landmark study of healthy cognitive aging. And for Dr. Deanna Davalos, a neuropsychologist here at Colorado State University. It was probably the first time that I read a study that suggested that you could have the biological presence of Alzheimer's um, in your brain, but not have diagnosable Alzheimer's. That's right. The nun study showed that for some of these nuns, after they passed and their brains were examined, they did have physiological signs of Alzheimer's disease, like plaques or tangled proteins in the brain. But during their lives, they did not present with Alzheimer's. And it was likely because of their lifestyles and the habits that they adopted. Deanna tells us why. These nuns did everything, right? So they were their own plumbers, electricians, gardeners. <laughs> they taught kids. They, nurses, they did everything. They were very disciplined. They had schedules. But they did so many things that most of us don't even try because we just hire somebody or we say, I'll get somebody else to do that. But there is this idea that because they did so much simulation, they had something called cognitive reserve. They had sort of backup pathways. So when one pathway might have sort of been shutting down due to some of these biological predictors of dementia, they had backups because they had just sort of done these things that made these very rich neuronal connections in their brains. And there were things that we would expect, like um, there were some studies that suggested people who, those who had a more positive outlook, who, who chose to focus on positives, who had a sense of humor, um, were less likely to have dementia. And there's, there's probably other reasons. Sometimes if you're able to look at things with humor, you can maybe alleviate some of the stress. We know that stress is a big predictor of pathological aging. There were, when they looked at diaries, those who used richer words, who sort of put more effort into these writing samples, um, were less likely to have dementia. And so there were these things that suggested, you know, that really fed into this idea that they had been living these lifestyles that we, we talk about um, that either prevented them from having dementia, many of them. Or even in the ones, they had the genes, they had the, the physiological um, predictors of dementia, they didn't show dementia. That, that to me, and it's a study, and you, 
you have to, I think some people look at it and say, well, can you generalize? I don't know how much you can generalize to everybody. This is a very special population. But um, I don't ever want to diminish what that means in terms of that we do have such an active role in who we become as older adults. So on today's episode, we're going to expand on some of the concepts revealed by the Nun study. The most important one being that we are not destined for cognitive decline in older age. We're just not. I talked to Deanna about how to define cognitive decline and also about the habits and everyday decisions that we can make to keep our brains healthy as we age. We go on a tangent about the demand and the need for careers in aging. And Deanna tells us about some of the programs she is involved in at CSU to help support healthy cognitive aging. If you are looking for ways to keep your brain sharp as you get older, this is the episode for you. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. Okay, well then I am just going to say thank you for being here and doing this with me. Yeah, I'm excited. Me too. Then the first question then, let's just dive in. What is cognitive decline? And what is the difference and distinction between Alzheimer's, dementia, and occasional memory loss? That is a great question. So um, I guess I view cognitive decline on a continuum. So, you know, we do expect um, some age-related changes in cognition. And when we talk about cognition, we're just talking about an umbrella of different types of skills people have. So Um, decision-making, memory, attention, verbal skills. And so when we talk about decline, um, the idea is that as we age, there are definitely some areas that we expect um, to show a little bit of decline that's normal decline with aging. Some of that is like processing speed, so how long, how quickly you can kind of come up with an answer. Um, But there is definitely sort of this idea of normal aging and normal cognitive decline, um, and then what we describe as more pathological decline. So pathological decline would be more like um, any, any type of cognitive loss that falls outside of what you would expect, um, from other people your age. And that's really kind of how we diagnose is, is we look and say, if I compare you to 10,000 other um, women your age with similar education, are you falling in that, that area? And so when people start to kind of fall out of that area, then we start looking at um, pathological decline. And that can be mild cognitive impairment, where You have more problems than um, other people your age, but you don't meet the criteria for dementia yet. Um, And then we get into different types of dementia, um, which is, you know, more significant cognitive decline that typically is associated, typically associated with the inability to um, kind of maintain everyday tasks successfully. 
Um, and then Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. And so when we talk about dementia in the U.S., we often kind of use that interchangeably with Alzheimer's, but it's not. Um, dementia absolutely doesn't have to be Alzheimer's disease. It's an umbrella term, so it can be Lewy body and vascular dementia and frontotemporal. But Alzheimer's is considered one of the most prevalent. Um, and, and really, for a lot of people, that's what comes to mind when we talk about dementia. Mm -hmm. What kind of statistics do we have for how many people experience, you know, Alzheimer's or dementia in general? Um, that number is really hard to put your finger on in terms of um, if you're including just Alzheimer's or any type of dementia. There's sort of a push now where people will um, describe dementia in terms of dementia-related disorders. And if you're including dementia-related disorders, then you're including a bunch more people um, who meet criteria for mild cognitive impairment. Um, so, you know, I, I would say sort of the statistic in the U.S. is that um, almost every minute somebody in the U.S. is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease or related dementias. Um, the numbers sort of vary from study to study, but uh, probably around 60 or 70,000 people just in Colorado have dementia. So that number too, as, as most of us know, is increasing because we have an aging population. And so while in the past we've sort of had a little bit more representation from um, every age group, we have a population in the world that's aging, which means that we're going to have a, a situation that we haven't had before in history um, of significantly more older adults living in the world. And because age is a risk factor for dementia, we're going to have higher numbers of dementia than we've ever seen in the world. Are we prepared to tackle that? Like, Absolutely do we... not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. <laughs> We are so unprepared to tackle that. Um, what do you, you think know, are, are, are some of the, like, what are some of the things we can do to prepare? Because we know that we are going to have an increase in the aging population. We know we're going to have, you know, triple the amount of older adults in 30 years that we have today, something like that. So what kind of things can we be doing now to prepare for that? That is a good question. So, you know, I think one of the messages that um, I would really love listeners to take away is that at every stage of your life, every day of your life, from being an infant on, you you make decisions that affect how you're going to age cognitively. Um, and so we'll talk about some things that older adults can do, but I think it's really important for teenagers and 20-year-olds, 30, 40, 50, to know that uh, e even if we used to think like, oh, well, I have to start worrying about dementia when I'm 50 or 60, um, scientifically, we know that is just ridiculous, that it, it starts early. Um, and so what you do every day in terms of health and exercise and stimulation, um, social interactions, all of those are going to dictate um, the brain that you have as a 60 and 70 year old. The other thing that I think is really important um, is to realize that uh, being passive is not an option. So if you are 
an older adult and you're saying, well, I, I feel like I'm having a little bit more uh, word finding problems or I'm, I'm having a little bit uh, more difficulty remembering information. So I'm going to kind of check out of some things that I've done because I'm finding them more challenging. That is just the absolute opposite of what we need to be doing. Um, our, our brain changes every day. And so you have to be stimulating it and you have to be doing things that's giving it some reason to fire all those little neurons and get them talking. Um, so I, I think there's two ways to look at it. I mean, I, I think a big part of it that probably is outside the scope of our talk today is about policy that we, we just, we have to do so much more in this country in terms of policy. We can't rely on um, just family and friends to take care of every person with dementia. It's a bad, bad system um, to put right. in place. But in terms of um, what we can do, each and every person, it's it's coming up with a little checkbox every day of, am I eating something healthy? Am I getting off my butt and moving around? Am I socializing with somebody? And am I doing something that's a little bit hard for my brain? Um, so am I pushing myself? I think those are things that we really need to be doing every day. And it sounds like there's also value in considering healthcare careers that have you working in, you know, the older adult sector. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, I think there's just, there's some huge gaps. And I, again, um, I'm not bashing the U.S., but I can just kind of speak to the, <laughs> to the U.S. I think um, it's, you know, we'll talk a little bit, I'm sure, about ageism, but it's it's for a lot of people not a field that that young people get seem to get excited about. And um, like you said, because we have an aging population, um, there are going to be so many careers um, related to aging. And so I think if if you're a young adult and you're thinking, what do I want to do with my life? Then please explore like some of the things that are out there in terms of um just it doesn't have to be retirement communities. It can be things just working with older adults. Um, so I totally agree. I, I think we need to put more focus in this country too on having this more sort of lifespan view instead of I'm a young adult, so I want to work with young adults. Um, maybe older adults should work with older adults. We really it, it's we're all part of this whole developmental lifespan. So knowing more about it and knowing the opportunities that are out there are important. Yeah. I think it's just a byproduct of just young adults. And it's always this way. Like young adults, we're in our own mind. Like we don't envision what life is going to be like when we're in our 60s and older. <laughs> and it's not, to be fair, Hannah, it's it's 40-year-olds not thinking about it and 50-year-olds not thinking about it. So it's not just me. That's no. <laughs> it is not just you. <laughs> That's good. So we're kind of hopping around a little bit here, but but let's go back to this question, which you've already kind of touched on a little bit. What misconceptions do we have about cognition as we age? What, what kind of things do I, my young adult self, generally speaking, envision is going to happen to me as I get older? That's, that is really important for people to hear. Um, you know, I, I think we... Um, in general, have sort of negative uh, ideas about aging. And I think that we kind of focus on some of the things that we, we do know that happen. Like I said, there are cognitive changes. Um, some of them are, are associated with things we don't want, like maybe forgetting things a little more or taking a little longer to maybe think about, think through something. But 
there are a lot of benefits of um, aging in terms of wisdom, in terms of sort of the accumulation and wealth of knowledge that we gain, that we get every day we live. We have more experiences and we can build on that. Um, and there are studies that suggest that contrary to what people think, uh, older adults tend to focus on positives more than younger adults do, um, that they sort of have what we call sort of a, a positivity bias, like they try and, and focus on the positives. And so, you know, I think I think there's a couple of misconceptions. One is that just one day you're old. Um, that's one of the misconceptions is, uh, you know, I don't really have to worry about that till I'm old. Um, I can tell you that as somebody who is now like barking at 50, that I don't feel any different than I did when I was 30. And that just kind of happens. So I, I would rather people just sort of view it as, you know, every year I'm getting older, but here are the things that um, are going to be strengths about that I'm going to have next year. I mean, there are, there are benefits that come to aging that that young adults have a lot of stressors that you don't have anymore when you're older. And so I, I don't like it viewed as sort of this youth is all wonderful and being older is, is bad because it's just absolutely not true. Um, and I think because we have sort of this negative bias in society about aging, we kind of set people up for failure in the sense of we sort of program people to think, um, well, I'm not going to be able to do this and I'm not, so I need to do things because I won't be able to. And there's very few things that you won't be able to do as an older adult that you did um, as a younger adult. And so we need to kind of change that narrative. And I think along with that, what we do is, is we kind of create maybe fear and, um, hypervigilance to things you can't do that we attribute to age. Um, and so you could be somebody who maybe is 60 or 70 and you um, maybe get tired working out in the yard. And if you were 30 and you got tired working out in the yard, you might say, oh my gosh, I need to start exercising more. So I have, you know, more energy to do this. And maybe as a 70 year old in this country, we've taught people to say like, oh, I need to hire someone. And that's not the take home. The take home is the same message. I mean, be wise about it, but um, we can do all of those things. So I think a big a, a misconception is that just one day you're old and then when that day happens, you won't be able to do these things because that's just not true. Right. Right. I think the the perception that a lot of us have is that we're going to get older, we're going to reach a certain age and then our bodies are just going to start to fall apart. You know, right. we're going to, we're going to lose muscle mass. We're going to be really frail. We're going to break bones often. We're going to be slower. We're going to forget things. And, and, you know, we talk so much about it here at the center that that's just really not what the case is, especially if you incorporate, like you say, the, those healthy lifestyle, you know, habits throughout your lifetime. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, there's more and more research. Um, you know, I don't know if the, if the, you know, general public kind of keeps up with it, but there's more and more research that uh, we can sort of predict how you're going to age cognitively and physically by looking at a snapshot of like 30 years of your life. So mm -hmm. it really is like you were saying, it's what you're doing now um, as teens and 20s, and 30s and 40 year olds. It's really 
it's just undeniable that it helps us predict whether or not you're going to be able to work out in the yard when you're 70 by what you kind of did the rest of your life. So I totally agree. It's not something that just happens one day. Um, Mm -hmm. It's kind of a lifelong accumulation of what you've done with your days. Right. What can you speak to for, you know, listeners out there who might have family members that have Alzheimer's or dementia? Because I I feel like that's kind of a different conversation. These are people who see family members who already have these diseases and maybe they're thinking, oh man, is that also going to happen to me about the genetic side of it? That is a, again, a really good question. So I have, I have dementia in my family. Um, and you know, I study dementia, I work with people with dementia, I work with caregivers. And so, um, you know, I, I definitely spend many hours a day around this topic. And it's funny because, um, I have brothers who, of course, have this, also have a family history of dementia. And um, I think I'm far more optimistic than they are, um, just from knowing a little bit about it. So we, we have had lots of conversations in the last couple of years about, um, well, am I destined to have dementia because we have um, a parent with, with dementia? And you know, if you have a family history, you are, of course, at increased risk. That's for anything that you have um, genetic predispositions for. Um, if you look at how we age in general, kind of a rule of thumb number is that how you are going to be as a 70-year-old, and this includes dementia, is maybe 25 to 30 percent genes. Um, so, but that's everything. That's not just dementia. It's how you're going to age in terms of um, physical health and um, probably emotional health. So that sounds like a lot if you're focusing on the the sort of fear part of it. But, you know, I view it more as there's 60 to 75% of your future that's in your hands by your environment. Um, so I don't want to minimize it. Um, I, I do caregiving too, and I don't ever want to mer- minimize caregiving. Um, but I think it's really important important for caregivers or people who have individuals with dementia and their families to know that um, it, it's probably all the things that you and I have just already talked about are, are probably, you know, doubly important for them that right. they are taking care of their physical health and their nutrition and their sleep and their stress levels, um, that they're really working hard on things like having social support um, so, you know, I, I think you want to be vigilant about your family history. I, I think it would, it's just, it's ignorant not to, and I don't mean ignorant and in a bad way. I mean, ignorant and not knowing is, is probably not helpful in terms of knowing what risks you have, but then you have to use that information in a positive way. You have to say, okay, well, this is something that went on with my parents or my grandparents, um, what could I be doing differently in my life to try and sort of stave off those effects? Right. So, so it's very realistic that even if people have genetic predispositions to Alzheimer's, say they could have a life without it. Absolutely. They, they have these healthy lifestyles that they incorporate throughout their lifespan. Absolutely. That's right. Awesome. Okay. Uh, are there any other active lifestyle interventions you want to touch on? Sure. Um, you know, so 
when we talk about active, I think it's really important um, to make sure people know that that's not, I mean, so phys- so exercise, exercise, physical exercise without a doubt um, helps with everything. I mean, it just, being a clinical psychologist, I will tell you, it helps with everything. It helps with depression. It helps with anxiety. It helps with aging. So um, exercise is a big one. But I also want to make sure that when we talk about active lifestyle, active doesn't mean just physically active. So it means that um, you are doing things that stimulate you. And, you know, I think the more you understand what the research looks like in aging, the more you understand that it's hard work. I mean, it's hard work to have your your brain age in the way you want it to. And so, um, like for me, example, I, I love puzzles. And so puzzles are associated with, you know, anything that's kind of this visual spatial coordination is that's associated with as like a good activity for aging. But there's evidence to that it probably doesn't push me very much. I'm probably not making any new connections because I've always loved puzzles. And so um, then I find, okay, well, then I need to do things like learn a foreign language or I need to, my son is always pushing me to learn a programming language. Oh, <laughs> I can geez. tell you <laughs> right now. That's, that's just the no. I'm not going to. <laughs> no, Hannah. <laughs> when I do not want to do these things, um, I tell myself I can physically feel the, these neurons working because it is so painful in my head. Um, so I must be doing something good. So, um, I, and I don't want to make, I don't want to tell people to go and do things they hate because that's not, but I, but I think what the research really suggests is that you want to push yourself to do things that, that are a hybrid of being, um, you know, stimulating and interesting to you, but they really should push you too. And, and that's with everything. So if you've done the same exercise routine for 30 years, I I am not knocking that anybody that's doing these things, that's wonderful. And you're doing some pro aging behavior, but mix it up. Like that's what we know about the brain too, is that mixing it up, making some I always tell my students some backup pathways in case one shuts down, have some backups in there. Um, So, you know, I think when we talk about active, it means doing things that are cognitively, cognitively, physically stimulating. And one that that I will bark about this whole interview that falls through the cracks is the social piece. We just I think we have like we focused way too much maybe at some point on physical and cognitive. And so maybe older adults are like, if I go for a walk and I do um, Sudoku, I'm set that that social piece, there are different areas of the brain that only light up when you're doing social activities. And so they don't light up when you're doing those other things. And we need that whole brain sort of lighting up. And so that means socially interacting, having conversations, um, and I and I tell my students, if you when you're healthy, when your brain's firing perfectly, you don't really think about it. But if you sit down and kind of map out um, everything that goes on in your brain when you have a conversation with somebody, it is overwhelming that oh, yeah. you are looking at their face, you're looking at their eyes, their mouth, um, you're looking at if they tilt their head, you're listening to their speech. 
you are timing their speech so that you say, oh, I have to wait exactly this many milliseconds, um, and that's a proper response, or I'm interrupting. But if I wait too long, that's awkward. You are trying to pick up tones in their language to say, is she being sarcastic or is she being serious? Is she, I mean, it is amazing what we do when we have conversations. It is just absolutely, and you're, and then you're constantly finding the words, filling them in, retrieving what the other person said so that there is some coherence to sort of what's going on. And when you look at what the brain does, if we, if we drop things like conversations and interactions, that is deadly for our brain. So when you, when you asked me about active, active, healthy, active lifestyles, absolutely diet, nutrition, physical, cognitive, um, but definitely social too, engaging, even if it's harder for you do the, have the same thought I do that if it hurts a little bit, it's probably making some new connections. Yeah. And I know for myself, I'm, I can tend to be more of an introverted person. And so when it comes to social interactions, you know, sometimes I make plans and I really just don't feel like going. But then yeah. I ultimately tell myself, no, you really need to because you kind of haven't had a good conversation in a long time. Yes. <laughs> so it's the same yes. kind of premise, even as you age. It, it just sounds like as you get older, it's even more important that you have You're- that social connection. You're absolutely right. And I, that brings up a really important point is sometimes, um, you know, I would say earlier in my career when I would work with older adults, not as much now, but it's still there, is um, that I would work with folks who had retired and, you know, had maybe been in careers that they hadn't really loved. It wasn't their passion. Um, and so when they retired, they would tell me, I'm not going to do anything anymore that I don't feel like doing because I, I spent my whole life doing something that I didn't feel like doing. And I would just get in these fights because I'm the same way as you. Like I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm introverted. I mean, I can socialize, but I don't love it. Um, but it's one of those things that I would push them and say, if, if you just did what you felt like doing every day, I can can already tell you, I can write a prescription that you're going to have some sort of pathological aging because we, we have to, at all points, push ourselves to do things that are challenging. That's the whole way that we keep our brain healthy. And so I totally agree with you. I still do it. I still, even though I love, once I get out the door, I totally love being with my friends and family every day. It's sort of like, I'd rather just stay in bed and Read a book. Um, so absolutely, you just have to keep pushing and knowing that that is a type of exercise that you you desperately need, and that will benefit you not only from a brain perspective, but from an overall sort of mental health perspective. So, are you telling me that I should go and learn computer programming language, even <laughs> if I hate it? Is that my takeaway? Uh, I don't want to tell anybody. <laughs> that. Um, no, I mean. I don't actually even hate, I'll, I will say, I don't even hate coding. And I, and I actually love foreign languages. They look hard. Um, right. But so, you know, you have to be, every person has to be realistic about um, what I don't want people to do is to pick something that they find to be like the most challenging thing and then say, I'm going to do that because it's the absolute, and then put themselves in a, um, like anxiety provoking situation because they dislike it so much that they, 
that now they kind of like have a monkey on their back about not doing it. Like, I don't want that. So um, just, you know, I think picking things that, that are stimulating, but you, you do need to be a little bit interested in it. Or my other um, suggestion is say, I'm going to try something for five days. That's it. I'm just going to try it for five days. If at the end of the five days, I find something rewarding about it, then I'm going to keep doing it. But if at the end of the five days, I hated it every five, every day of the five days, I'm going to find something else. So just these little goals, but don't do something that just is so painful for you that you dread it. Every <laughs> kind of ruins the point. <sighs> it does. I, I see your point. I see your point. Only things I enjoy doing. Yeah. I could get behind a foreign language. Like I yeah. could go get some Rosetta Stone and learn some French or something. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I always give myself goals that are, I give myself rewards. So I say like, okay, if I can do this for six weeks and log in an hour every day of Spanish, then at the end of six weeks, I'm flying to Cancun for the week. So <laughs> give, yourself, give yourself a little reward if you, if you stick to it, whatever it is. Yes. Like dangle a carrot in front That's of That's right. Yes. I need carrots. <laughs> yes. So, so you've talked about all these, this variety of different interventions and habits that we can adopt. And, you know, this kind of ties in because you and I are both fortunate to work at a university where we have lots of programs and researchers who are trying to, you know, engage the community in these healthy lifestyle interventions that we've been talking about. So, can we kind of transition into some of the programs that you've been involved in at CSU? Um, maybe starting with this enriched aging that you have. Sure. Going on? What, what would you call it? The enriched aging project. Yeah, so we did a. This was a team of researchers um, that we ended up uh, applying for and getting awarded um, a. Catalyst for Innovative Partnership grant from um, the Office of the Vice President for Research. And this was a diverse team of researchers on campus that we, we started a group called the Enriched Environments for Healthy Aging Brains. And um, the idea was to look at, it was really kind of two pieces. We, we were interested in um, the effects of community-based activities like music, theater, dance, uh, even virtual reality um, on the brain, like if people were were engaging in activities that paired social activities, because we know that's important. So socializing um, with some type of stimulation like music or theater um, or dance, uh, could you see positive changes in the brain? Um, and then we also were really interested in that group to see if uh, we could see some positive effects for people with dementia. Um, and then probably equally important in those studies were to also look at the caregivers of people with dementia. Um, you brought that up earlier and that group of people uh, often just sort of fall through the cracks in terms of, um, if, you know, if you take a second and you think about what caregivers are doing, they are essentially doing a 24-hour job. Um, and for many of them, they are doing that in addition to their 40 or 60-hour a week job. Um, and for many of them, they're doing that while raising children. Um, so we are just, it's putting so much stress often on caregivers. And so one of the things we wanted to look at was um, 
could we have some of these community-based uh, programs and could we see some benefits not only for the person with dementia, but also the person who is caring for that individual? Um, and so we started with uh, B-Sharp and this was, I mean, this was taken from a group in Phoenix where uh, a small group of musicians, uh, I think a quartet, uh, volunteered and would play music for people with dementia during lunchtime because their family members said how much they loved it and they loved that they were getting out of the house and that they were part of community. And so uh, we ended up doing a B-sharp study at uh, CSU where we paired with um, the local symphony and we paired with all sorts of people, Alzheimer's Association, Banner Health, all sorts of folks helped us. And we studied the effects of um, attending symphonies for people with dementia and their caregivers. And um, one of the findings that really surprised us, I, I got brought on the study as a neuropsychologist. And uh, because what you typically expect to see with pathological aging, so with dementia is um, slight decline every year, slight to severe, depending on what type of dementia and what stage, I had told the group when they recruited me, you know, if we can just get baseline, like no change, that's going to be amazing. Because I really believe that, but I also didn't want to sell it like this is going to, that's just not how it works. Um, right. And what we found in the folks was that those who attended the symphony, we saw improved cognition, even people with mid to late stage dementia. Um, if And the more they attended, the better the cognitive outcome. Um, it, of course, didn't reverse dementia, but what we saw was really unexpected and that they improved in cognition. So over the course of about a year, they were doing better at the end, um, those people who had attended. And again, there was a relationship between the more they were active, the bigger the cognitive boosts. Um, and so this team of all sorts of, there's a website that we can talk about at the end, but you could see what all the different people on campus are doing in terms of um, different types of activities, how they're, what types of measures they're looking at. We have people looking at saliva and looking at changes or uh, biological changes. It's a really cool team. And so I was, it was an honor to be part of it, but it, it was a wonderful opportunity to work with other people at CSU that were interested in looking at um, how to address cognitive decline or um, some of the negative effects of caregiving in older adults in our community. Yeah. And what was the, the caregiver outcome from attending in the B-Sharp program? Um, so what we generally saw, there's still lots of research going on in that group. So we, we still are in the, the midst that the cognitive effects have been published. But in terms of the caregiver, we still are working on those manuscripts. Um, it was really most of that was qualitative. So we would we would ask there were some measures that they also that wasn't my main piece, but they looked at a, a n number of um, sort of questionnaires and then asking people about their experience. And um, in general, I think some of the things that that surprised us um, were that when you're a caregiver, if you don't know other caregivers, it's a very lonely isolating experience. And it is sort of riddled with um, feelings and emotions that people just, uh, they're not prepared to feel. So they, they feel 
you know, I, I just told you sort of how they're juggling all these things. There's a lot of guilt. So even though this person is doing things that to me is heroic in terms of how they're spending their life, they often feel guilty about something, you know, because something will fall through their cap. There's just no way to juggle all of that. There's not enough hours in the day. And so it's often riddled with guilt. Um, you know, sometimes if this is your spouse or this is your parent that you're caring for, there's feelings of anger, which is totally normal. There's feelings of loss and grief. Um, there's just a lot of unexpected feelings. And, you know, I think one of the one of the findings in the study was that one of the most important pieces was, was the social socializing with other caregivers. So yes. um, for the B sharp study, we would have sort of a non-alcoholic happy hour um, where we, where our team would do the cognitive assessments with the folks who had dementia and the caregivers would, <clears throat> we would provide food and drinks and they would socialize and, oh my gosh, just, the feedback that we got about how normalizing that was um, to have other people in the exact same situation, to have other people having the exact same feelings and know I'm not a bad person if I feel this or I'm, I am doing enough. Um, that was one of the big pieces. And I think the other one that's really important for folks in our, our community to be aware of is that we got a lot of feedback about um, that it was nice to be normalized. So um, one of the things that I thought was really beautiful in our um, work with the symphony was that the symphony was super supportive of the B-Sharp program. And, you know, that um, West Kinney would, would welcome people that were there. So it wasn't like, oh, and there's these people with dementia, which to be honest, you get that. People are scared. They don't know how to deal with it. Um, it was a very welcoming, normalizing. They weren't um, at a concert for people with dementia. They were at the concert that everybody else in the community was going to. And so they really appreciated it being normalized, um, that this was just a normal activity. And they talked a lot about how um, going out and being, this was mainly with partners, with spouses for whom they were caring, that it was sort of um, kind of a reminder of that relationship they hadn't had in years, that that was somebody that they used to do all of these sort of romantic social events with. And so it would sort of spark some of these feelings instead of being bogged down in just the responsibilities of sort of, oh my gosh, this is this person who I love. And um, so it was the the caregiver, my, my colleagues are working mainly on those, but the results are beautiful. I mean, it's just, it makes you want to do it definitely invigorates us to do more of this. Right. Yeah. I've, I've interviewed some people who attended the B-Sharp program and that was the feedback that I heard. It was that spousal caregiver relationship. And, and he said that, um, he, it was like an invitation for normalcy, like to take yeah. them back to a day when they could just go out and dementia was not the center of their lives. And, yeah. and so to hear that was really beautiful. He said he, he really appreciated the program. Oh, that's one. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're so eloquent. Like when, when we got our first round of feedback, I think all of us cried. Like we just sat there and cried <laughs> because it was so beautiful and eloquent. And just, I mean, there were all these pieces that weren't really the focus of our study. And then we were like, oh, my gosh, this is 
probably more important than what we were studying. Um, right. So yeah, it's it was it's been an amazing experience to be part of that team. Mm-hmm. And so this this next project we're going to talk about is one I've worked very closely with you on. Tell yes, us about the you. Thrive Project. <laughs> what is the Thrive Project? Sure. So the Thrive Project again, I'm I'm big into uh, interdisciplinary. So I I don't think any big problem ever gets solved in just one little area. I think it's when we come together that we get better solutions and we learn more from each other. So the Thrive Project came from CARES Act funding through the county. Um, And it was, the intent of the funds was to combat sort of COVID-related negative outcomes in older adults. And so our team, um, and there's a bunch of us, which you, Hannah, are a big part of, um, (laughs) is just trying to provide people with all of those things that you and I have been talking about for the last 40 minutes um, that help with the aging brain. So physical exercise, music, any kind of stimulation, nutrition, any type of social engagement. Um, So the Thrive Project uses this funding from the county to provide, at this point, web-based, one-on-one activities for older adults in our community. So these are any older adults, 60 and up, who are interested in um, sort of working on some of these things that you and I have been talking about. The beauty of the Thrive Project to me is, I mean, it has everything. If you want to have a a virtual pet to interact with, um, we have that. If you want to have a customized nutrition plan based on sort of what you're doing on a daily basis while you're dealing with COVID, we have that. We have an amazing team of um, undergrads and graduate students who have been developing cognitively stimulating um, respite activities for people with dementia. So if you're caring for someone, we have unlimited um, opportunities for your loved one to go on a one-on-one tour um, of the Monterey Aquarium with somebody who will spend that time with them. So it's all of these different activities that are all empirically supported to to help in terms of either the person who's receiving it or the respite for the caregiver. Um, And it does a couple of things. It it helps in those domain-specific areas. So clearly, if you're getting a customized exercise plan, then you're helping with all of the benefits of physical exercise. Um, But the other thing every single one of them does is helps with social isolation. Um, So I think most listeners know, but um, there have been some really profound findings during COVID of um, what social isolation is doing to people. And it is not good. Um, It Mm -hmm. is on par with smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, just being alone and not interacting. And so, For every single one of these activities that people have available to them, um, we're addressing social isolation. I will tell you also that like a sneaky part of my interest um, in the Thrive Project is what you and I talked about, is if people want younger adults getting interested in fields working with older adults, you have to give them experiences working with older adults. And I can tell you without a doubt that every single one of my research assistants who works with older adults comes back to me. And this is hundreds now over the years. It comes back to me me and say, I never thought that I would want to work with older adults. I always wanted to work with kids. 
I want to work with older adults, but they don't know that until they have the experience. And so a big part of the Thrive Project is also getting undergrads and graduate students involved in more of this intergenerational conversations and activities. Um, and that just benefits everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then this next one, Aging Clinic of the Rockies, one of the other many hats that you wear. You are the director of this clinic. So tell us a little bit about the different services that you offer. Sure. So I love Aging Clinic of the Rockies. It again, It's a training clinic where we train um, advanced students um, or we, we have one of our associate, our associate director has uh, a master's degree. So we're, we're trying to get um, people who are in the field of mental health trained to work with older adults specifically. Um, when you don't have people that are working around older adult issues, um, we sometimes label things wrong or we're not aware of some of the other reasons somebody might be experiencing something. And so they don't get optimal care. Um, and I'm, that's not a jab at anyone. It's just true. It's, it's, you get more customized care when you're working with a group that's looking at um, issues around your age group. And so Aging Clinic of the Rockies is so cool. So it, it, it relies a lot on, on grant funding, county funding, um, and then everything there is sliding scale. So I don't, we have never turned down an older adult. Uh, we have either found something that's sliding scale, we've provided it on a donation basis, or if they need something else, we make sure that we set them up with the right people. But um, we have um, an entire program dedicated to caregivers and with funding through the county, um, if you are a caregiver of an older adult, you are qualified for, um, it's, it's free, we say donation-based because you're welcome to give a donation, but it really is free. Um, caregiving mental health services. We have caregiver groups. So if you want to meet some other caregivers, we now have caregiver social isolation groups. So if you're a caregiver and you're also dealing with COVID, we have a whole different type of group set up so that you can know about some of the opportunities that are web-based and that you can share some of the problems that come up in terms of maybe lack of respite as a caregiver during COVID. Um, I mean, we have everything you could imagine for caregivers. We also have a new grant-funded caregiver mentor program. So we have people who have been caregivers who are being paired up one-on-one with new caregivers so they can walk them through the whole system of being a caregiver in our community. Um, So really, just if you're a caregiver and you need anything, reach out, and all of those are free. Um, We also have... uh, a senior peer counseling program. So if you are an older adult and you would like to be trained as an informal counselor, um, we have that training. If you are an older adult and maybe you don't feel like you need um, to go to counseling so much, but you would like some companionship in terms of dealing with kind of more age-related normal problems, we have that program that's free. We have neuropsychological assessments. If if Hannah and my conversation has got you thinking, like, should I be tested to see if I'm how I am doing on the continuum of cognitive aging? Um, we have sliding scale, um, very affordable uh, cognitive testing that we can provide baseline for people. So even if you're not experiencing anything, if you say I want to come in and get a baseline, so I, I will know if something happens. Um, or if you have a family member that you're saying, I just don't know. I don't know if this is normal aging, but I'm a little concerned. Oh my gosh, I'm trying to make sure I don't miss anything. We just have individual service counseling services. 
for older adults. If you're an older adult and you need anything, we'll find something for you at Aging Clinic. But um, yeah, so we that's that's we serve older adults. All of our training, all of our services, everything is about older adults. Right. And and like you said, a lot of these services, not just with the clinic, but these other projects we've talked about, too, are free to residents in Larimer County. A lot of them. that's right. That is yeah. correct. And the the uh, caregiver mentor, just to make sure I mention this, that that is a that's a national grant. So if there is anybody who's listening in any county, really anywhere um, who would like that because of COVID, it's all web based. So we could help anybody who needs those caregiver services. For that one. Yeah. 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 There's just so many resources that we have available within CSU that just I don't think people really know about. It's it's like we're sitting right here in the same town and and we're here to help and we're ready and we're trained. We know how to. That's right. (laughs) So I have one more question for you. And it is, you know, we've already talked a little bit about it. I feel like I know what you're going to say. But what is your (laughs) best advice for healthy aging from from your vantage point and the things that you research? So as soon as you can write, um, so I don't know, kindergarten, um, every day, every single day of your life, write down something that you're going to do for healthy aging, just every day. And I don't care if it's 15 minutes or 30 minutes, but for the rest of your life, if you're listening every day, write down something that's going to make you age more healthy and, and it should start immediately for everyone. And that can be any of those things that we've talked about. Um, It can be swapping out an unhealthy meal for a healthy meal that day, or I'm going to take the stairs and instead of the elevator, or I'm going to go out in the sunshine and get some vitamin D instead of sitting in front of a computer. Um, All of those. I'm going to, I'm going to call someone, even though honestly, I'm not, I'm like Hannah and Deanna and I kind of am a, social phobe. I'm going to still like do it. I'm going to get some social interaction, but there should not be a day that goes by that you don't do something that is going to put you on that pathway to healthy aging. Mm-hmm. And and finding things that you enjoy. I feel like that's just yes. going to be a theme for the rest of this podcast. It's finding something that you enjoy and also like taking baby steps, like doing something that is manageable for you and your schedule. That is exact. That's so important because sometimes I, I I think people get overwhelmed, and then they're like, then they start feeling bad because they're not doing the things. And and that's why I say it can be five minutes, fifteen minutes. It really is about just it's starting a lifestyle. You don't have to have that lifestyle tomorrow. It's just starting a lifestyle. So if you're somebody who's not very active and you say, I'm going to go out in the backyard and pick weeds for. 10 minutes today, I applaud you. That's huge. You're you're changing your lifestyle. So it doesn't have to be these huge, um, you know, ginormous steps. It just has to be these baby steps. Yeah, that's great advice. Okay. Well, thank you for being here and doing this. My pleasure. My pleasure. I loved it. If you would like to learn about the Enriched Aging Project that Deanna mentioned, you can visit chhs.colostate.edu slash enriched aging for more info. You can also visit our programs and services page at healthyaging.colostate.edu to learn more about the Thrive Project or the Aging Clinic of the Rockies. We will also link these websites in the episode description, so make sure to check that out. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast by the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. We will see you in the next episode.